or how good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. It is like precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down upon the collar of his robes. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. What's the most wonderful sight, the most spectacular vision that you've ever seen uh, thus far in life? The sort of sight that you look back on and, and, and when you try to describe what it was like to see this to other people, it's hard to get the words out. It's hard to capture how good it was. The sort of sight that leaves you gobsmacked. I was thinking about that during the week and the sight that keeps coming back into my mind is a beach on the south coast of New South Wales. It's called Seven Mile Beach. I call that for obvious reasons but it is so spectacular because of the huge crescent shape of it. So long and so curved is it that you can see both the sunrise and the sunset on it depending on what part of the beach you are standing on. I've got a a photo at home. Uh, we, We went there as part of our honeymoon. I've got a photo at home of uh, Liz staring out on Seven Mile Beach. There you have the two most spectacular sights in all the world in one photo. So what is it for you? What, what is the most spectacular sight that you have ever seen? Perhaps it is uh, the Peak District in the snow, as it was just a few months ago. My brother was over from Australia when it was snowing and there we were up in the Peak District, this vision of just mountains and valleys uh, sloped and curved with wonderful white snow. It's a spectacular sight. Sometimes when you see these sort of sights or whatever it is you might have in your mind, it's hard to capture how good it is. And in Psalm 133, our first reading, King David wants to tell you his most spectacular sight, the most amazing experience he's ever had. So good, he says, it's better than oil running down off your head on your beard. Apparently that was a great experience Better than soft rain falling on the mountain down through the valley. In fact, it's where blessing and life are at their peak, where life is full. What is this sight that he delights in? It is the deeply good and wonderful, pleasant experience of God's people living together as one. David says, how good is unity? How good is it when brothers and sisters from God's family are totally one? Well, he says it's as good as a guest. It's the richest experience, the most spectacular sight, the most pleasant place to live. And the testimony of all of Scripture confirms his enthusiasm. There's no poetic license in the psalm. The unity of God's people is right at the heart of God's purposes. And this morning as we continue our look at this letter of 1 Corinthians, we come to a passage that will call upon us to seek that unity, to savour that unity, to see how good and pleasant and experience that he is to be one as a church. Now remember, Paul is writing to a church in Corinth that is deeply divided, rent through with divisions. You name the issue, they were divided over it. And so in verse 10, as, as he begins his letter in earnest, we have an impassioned plea from Paul to this church of God in Corinth to be one, to enjoy this good and pleasant unity again. And as he makes this appeal in verse 10, he begins to describe what that unity would look like. And while he lacks perhaps the poetry of the psalm, the vision here is spectacular. And it's so helpful for us as we try to see what it would look like to be one church family. Have a look at verse 10. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, 
in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree with one another. When a church is one, they agree. Literally, they say the same thing. Now, at first glance, if you look at that characteristic of of a church, it sounds remarkably boring, doesn't it? Perhaps even a bit foolish. After all, fools never differ. There is apparently nothing so boring and foolish in this world than people who are endlessly agreeing with one another. But that's what Paul is appealing for. Say the same thing. And not just anything. Do you see the grounds on which he has made this appeal, this, this one theme, this one message that they're to have? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Their one message, their one gospel, their one song is Jesus Christ as Lord. When it comes to the church of God, that is our theme. We have no other. And there is nothing so good and pleasant as the sound of brothers and sisters speaking that gospel in unison. However, as the verse goes on, as he continues his appeal, it's not just our speech that shows that we are one, it's the very fabric of who we are as a church. He says that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. Now some of the colour has been lost in translation. Literally Paul is saying that you are sewn together. The very fabric of the church in Corinth has been torn apart. They were meant to be like a banner lifted high over the city of Corinth proclaiming Christ, proclaiming how good it was to be his people and yet they were torn apart. So Paul appeals that they be sewn back together and he talks about two ways he wants to see them sewn back together. Firstly, they are to be sewn together in mind or literally mindset. A united church is one in its outlook. It is good and pleasant when we view the world the same way. And again, this this view which we see the world by is, is focused on Jesus Christ. Christ and him crucified is the lens through which we see all reality. It is, in fact, the only way to have a clear perspective on things. And you start to see what a difference this would make in a church family, having one mind. It doesn't mean that we'll never disagree. It doesn't mean that we'll never differ or question or or debate things. But it does mean that when we do differ, when we disagree on some issue, we, we will look together through the lens of Christ and him crucified because that's how we'll get the right perspective. There I start to see myself clearly as a child of grace, with no status of my own. There I start to see those around me in the same way. There I start to see my world clearly. We are to be sewn together in mind. And secondly, we are to be sewn together in thought or ambition, intent. Paul says how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters have one goal in life. And again, think of the difference that would make in a church family. Think of the joy of being able to look at a brother and sister in Christ here this morning and say, I wonder what he thinks of me. I wonder what his agenda is here for himself, for for this church, for this city. What's his ambition? Well, how good is it when we can answer those questions and know that the goal is the same, that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ be made much of in this place and in this city. To know that that's his agenda for himself and for me and for this church. He longs to see Christ made much of. No wonder the psalmist delights in the unity of God's people. No wonder Paul appeals for it. The unity of God's people is indeed good and pleasant. Speaking of Christ, 
seeing things through Christ and honouring Christ together. It's a wonderful picture, isn't it? And tell me, have you seen and enjoyed that sort of unity here in this church family? Have you experienced it this morning as you look around and see people all around you have been transformed by that cross who have a new theme, a new perspective, a new ambition in life to look around and know you are in this together? Did you feel it in our first hymn as we praised him together? When we bent the knee before his throne of grace together and appealed once more for forgiveness for our sins, knowing we all need it. Did you feel it when we spoke in one voice, that one creed of the one Lord Jesus Christ? And in a few minutes we will gather around this communion rail and you will see all around you in different directions people who likewise are remembering Christ and him crucified. Do you experience that in your small group, those moments of seeing Christ together and savouring Christ together, of seeing those around you grow in the grace of God? And then there's the countless informal encounters of this unity all around. The timely question, the the email, the the meeting in a coffee shop or a pub or, or even just on the street. Seeing people that you know you have something extraordinarily in common with, something remarkable. Every time we experience that unity in whatever form it takes, we need to rejoice at how powerful our God is, how wise he is, how gracious he is to bring such a unity about in a world like ours. We are meant to marvel at this sight as the angels in heaven do. What could destroy something so good and so wise and so powerful as the unity of God's people? It's got to be something big, doesn't it? Well, the answer Paul gives us is, I can. That's what can destroy it. What's the contaminating factor in a church that can rip it apart? I am. A human obsessed with himself. And it's not just me, is it? That's a disease latent in all of us. This disease of focusing on ourselves rather than Christ. I was thinking about that during the week and uh, thinking how... Quite often huge destructive forces start with something very small, don't they? We've seen it with uh, the swine flu, this thing that is sweeping our world. How does something that destructive start? It starts with a sneeze or, or a cough. And that's what's happened in Corinth. Slowly, one by one, this church has seen this disease rip them apart. Slowly, uh, the, this these characteristics we saw in verse 10 of what a church as one looks like are reversed. Rather than speak the same, speak of Christ crucified, we start to speak of ourselves. My theme becomes me. We speak a gospel of demand, of complaint, of rights, of the way things should be. It's the gospel that starts with the word I rather than Jesus It's a gospel spoken by a person who comes on a Sunday and can hear the news of sins forgiven, of of conscience cleansed, of peace with God, of freedom in Christ, can hear all that and that becomes the background noise. And in the foreground is, I want more hymns. I want less hymns. Where's the creed gone this week? Why are we welcoming people again? This service is too long. We speak of ourselves, not Christ. And rather than having the same mindset, 
the mind by which we see the world through Christ and him crucified, we see it through ourselves. And so when differences come, as they will, I'm not looking to respond as Jesus would with humility and grace and patience. I'm thinking, how can I ensure that I get what I want here? How can I make clear how important my rights are? And rather than having the same ambition, seeking Christ's honour, in this church and in the world, I seek my own. After all, who else is going to? The great destroyer of the good and pleasant unity of God's people is me. The Corinthians were experiencing a pandemic of that sort of destruction. But it had started so small. Do you see it there in verse 11, how it had started? It started with quarrels. Seems so petty, doesn't it? When I hear the word quarrels, I think of Finn and Jamie arguing over Lego, who's got the most pieces. But it is built into deep divisions in Corinth and the root cause is I. Now I wasn't very good at physics at school, it wasn't my strong suit by a long margin, but one of the few things I do remember from my physics classes were two forces that are at work in our world. There's a centripetal force a force that pulls everything to the very centre of things and then there is the opposite, the centrifugal force which pulls everything apart. Well, in a church those two forces are at play. Christ and him crucified is a thing that pulls everything to the centre. I am the centrifugal force. I am the force that pulls things apart. The more I speak of myself, the more I view the world selfishly, the more I seek my own status, the further I and others are pulled apart. And if you want to see a full-blown case of it, have a look at verse 12. See what results. And here's the trick. As you look at verse 12, it looks like a horrendous picture. Imagine a church as terrible as this. But let's pick it apart a bit more and see how close to home it really might be. Paul says, one of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another says, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. The Corinthians have set themselves up as opposing parties and behind it all is the key theme, did you pick it? I. I gravitate to the teacher who says what I think or sees things as I do or confirms my status. Let's have a look at them. Firstly, you've got the people who say, I follow Paul. This is a group that perhaps were converted under Paul who was the church planner of the churches in Corinth, their their spiritual father as he's called in this letter. The people who long for those formative days when Paul was here. And we can all fall into that danger. Perhaps being the old guard of a church who, who might be tempted to measure things not by the gospel of Christ but by a person from the past. We can so easily forget God's graciousness to us that those who have gone before and those perhaps that aren't even here yet will speak the same gospel to us and rejoice in that. Then there is a danger that that I suspect many of us who were converted and grew up elsewhere other than this church might measure things by a person or by a church experience from the past and we, we measure everything by that. I remember I grew up I think most as a Christian in the 80s and 90s at Christchurch St Ives in Sydney. For me, the the evening service at at St Ives was just the golden era of my Christian life. The the, the years that I spent there, I grew so much, I learnt so much and I enjoyed so much. 
I remember going back there in about 2004 and sitting again in the evening service and thinking, I'm not sure what all the fuss was about really. All the magic seemed to have gone. But I suspect there were probably people there in the 80s and 90s looking back to an earlier era thinking that same thing. It's very easy for us to attach the gospel to a person or a church, not to Christ. I follow Paul. Then there are those who say, I follow Apollos. Apollos had come into Corinth after Paul and if you read Acts 18, he is an amazing guy. Passionate, eloquent, clever, teachable, winsome. He's got it all. And he appears to have had a huge impact in Corinth as people were drawn to this bold, clever, interesting teacher, unlike Paul. And again, the gospel of I has destroyed the good gifts that Apollos brought to them. As people gravitated to him, not to see Christ, but to see Apollos and what he could give them. Now I put it to you that amongst us as evangelicals, we have a great danger here. We rightly elevate the preaching of the word, but there is real danger in this era of celebrity preachers, of uh, looking for for preachers who entertain us or, or move us or excite us or wow us. We're left thinking what a great preacher rather than what a great saviour. I follow Apollos. We end up compiling a list of perhaps attributes that we look for in a teacher and we assess our own experience against that. We end up measuring not against the gospel but against these preferences. And so we stop looking for the great preacher or even the average one to tell me the gospel. We look for them to, if you like, light themselves on fire and impress me with their latest rhetorical trick. We measure our teaching not against the gospel but techniques. And the great tragedy of this is I value my teachers not by how much he shows me Jesus but how much he impresses me. I follow Apollos. Then there are those who say I follow Peter. Now it's not clear whether Peter ever visited Corinth, it seems not at all and yet this key figure in the early church seems to have sway in Corinth nonetheless, this key figure in the wider church. Again there's a danger here isn't there? A danger of allowing rather than the gospel to to have sway in our church to have a key figure in the wider church have sway. We, We can do it by perhaps assessing ourselves as saying I'm a Calvinist And we assess everything by that. Or even the recent call by the bishops in this land to unite around them. Sounds great, doesn't it? But disastrous if Christ is not the unifying force. I follow Peter. And finally there is a group that say, I follow Christ. Now on the surface this looks like the group to be in, doesn't it? The safe ground. Of course we follow Christ, we all do. But most likely this represents, I think, the worst division of all. In Corinth there was this tendency to be super spiritual, to think you sort of had it all as a Christian, to to get to that point where you felt like you'd learned everything there was to learn. And these were these people, I follow Christ. People who thought they were super spiritual, but Paul will call them anemic and childish in this letter. People who have grown up in in churches of good soil where they've been nourished by God's word and with God's people but now they feel they've got nothing more to learn. No longer open to being taught, no longer open to having their heart transformed by the simple gospel. And again I think there is a massive danger for us here. 
a danger that I've seen express itself in, in many ways over the years. I remember a period of time again at that evening service in St Ives where, where there was a group of people who had got to the point where they thought, I'm not getting anything out of the sermon so I'll just bring a book with me. And when it comes time for the sermon, I'll pull out my book and I don't learn from sermons, I don't think that way. I've learned all I can. Or we form separate groups to, to do the sort of stuff that we think we should be doing. Well, church for us becomes optional unless I'm involved in some way. I follow Christ. The picture of the church in Corinth in verse 12 at first looks far removed from us but scratch the surface and you see the danger is still there. What could repair divisions like this? What could heal and bring back unity? Well, Paul's answer is simple. We need to hear the gospel again. Whenever we find ourselves dividing, we need to listen to the gospel again. And Paul proclaims it to us in verse 13. He does it by asking us three questions. Questions designed to undermine any any divisions that might be here and to sew us back together. He says, is Christ divided? Is Is that the gospel that called you, that saved you, that keeps you? Blameless to the end? Because that's the gospel you live by. It's like you've torn Christ to pieces and divvied him up. Paul asks, can you do that? Is that how the church of God works? No, it doesn't. He says, Christ is one. And so are we. We are his body. Body parts can't say to each other, I have no need of you. You see, truth is, unity is either in Christ or it is not at all. We don't unite around some human quality or bishop or cause or doctrine. The only force that pulls us together is Christ and him crucified. Anything else will pull us apart. So there's Paul's gospel point number one. You have one Christ. Secondly, he asks, was Paul crucified for you? Don't you love it? You've got these four groups, one of which was gravitating around Paul and that's the group he goes for. It's not like he's saying everyone needs to join the Paul group. He says, was Paul the one on that hill hanging there for you? Was he the one crucified? No, Christ was. Paul is showing us the absurdity and sinfulness of shaping our thinking around a person, not Christ, which we can so easily do. Paul says, your Christian heroes, your gurus, were any of them crucified for you? Could they have been? None of them could have taken your place. Only Christ can do that. We don't need a guru or a speaker. We need a saviour, says Paul. And incidentally, so do our teachers. As Paul says of himself in another letter, I am the worst of sinners. Choose your heroes carefully. There is only one celebrity in the church of God. His name is Jesus. We have no other. And so there we have Paul's gospel. You have one Christ, one Saviour, and third, you have one Lord. Do you see his final question? Were you baptised into the name of Paul? Apparently in Corinth they got to the point where they were setting up their status by who had dunked water on them, who had, who had baptised them. I was baptised by Apollos. Paul says that's irrelevant. So irrelevant is, is it to Paul that he can't even remember who he baptised. He's writing his letter and it's like Stephanus who's with him. He's prodding him saying, you, you baptised my family too, don't forget that. Paul doesn't care about who he baptised. It's who you were baptised into that matters. When you were baptised as a Christian, you went from one camp, your own, to another one, Christ's. You belonged to his cause alone. 
And so given that, realise that he alone was crucified for you. He alone was the one who protects you. He alone is the one who will keep you safe and strong and blameless to the end. Therefore, give him your loyalty. This is our gospel, the centripetal force that pulls us together as a church. Unite around anything other than Christ and you'll find no power there, says Paul in verse 17, no matter how colossal the crowd we might find there might be. Because as Paul says in verse 17, there is no power other than the gospel of Christ's cross. So as we finish, let me ask you this. Who are your teachers in this church? Who are are the people that teach you the gospel? I I guess on Sunday there's certain people who teach you the gospel, but then there's your small group where other people teach you. And I suspect the Bible calls us to teach one another the gospel as well. You are surrounded by your teachers let me call on you as a church to seek Christ from your teachers rather than yourself. Seek Christ from your teachers rather than gifts or entertainment. Seek Christ from your teachers rather than being confirmed in your views. The gospel of Christ is the most dynamic change agent in the world. If you hear it, it will change you. Finally, seek Christ from your teachers rather than seeking the crowd. There is a great anaesthetic in being in the majority but Christ calls us to seek him alone. Now right next to me here there's a little plaque on my right hand side which tells me my job description when I get up here. It says, Sir, we would see Jesus. That's my job. And that's your job to seek him. Not only here on Sunday but whenever we meet together as a church in whatever context, to seek him. If we do, God will powerfully work among us because the cross is the power and the wisdom of God. He will grow us up as a church and he alone will get the glory. Let's pray.